Um, we are continuing this series, um, looking at 20 chapters in the Old Testament that provides for us uh, sort of the story of redemption in the Old Testament. Last week, Essen began really at the beginning, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, um, that God created all things, that He created us in His image, uh, and at the end of His creation, He declared that everything that He had made was very good. Now, wouldn't it be great if the Bible ended there? But it doesn't. We have chapter 3 and beyond, and chapter 3 introduces us to a significant change to God's good creation. Next to the cross, this is the darkest day in human history. Genesis 3 describes when sin entered our world. But even in the midst of this great darkness, there is light. Even in the midst of great treachery and evil, there is hope. This passage is going to help us understand better why we do the things that we do. It's going to help us understand better why the world is the way that it is. But more, and more importantly, this passage is going to remind us that Jesus truly is our only hope. And if you belong to Jesus, no matter what darkness you find yourself in, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. With that in mind, I ask you to stand. I'm going to read for us out of chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 14 through 19. This is God's perfect, good, and holy word, and it's given to us in love. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Thorns is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for this hard reminder that sin is now part of our world. Sin is now part of us. And we desperately need help. We desperately need Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you might use this time to remind us and to point us to Jesus, that we may see him in a new and fresh way, and that we may embrace him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so although we're, we're going to spend most of our time in those verses that I just read, I do want to spend a few minutes just kind of outlining Genesis 3, particularly what happens uh, before we get to verse 14. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that you know, God created Adam and Eve, and they're in perfect fellowship with each other. They're in perfect fellowship with God. And everything was very good. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we're introduced to a new creature, which is the serpent. The serpent, as it says, was more crafty than any other creature made. We also learn that this serpent was no ordinary snake. It is Satan either inhabiting or appearing in the form of a snake, and he has a plan. God is Satan's enemy, and he wants to thwart God's good plan. He wants to, to ruin God's image bearers. And so he comes to sow seeds of doubt. 
First, he questions Adam and Eve's understanding of what God said. Did God actually say? Then he questions God directly. He questions God's authority and goodness. You will not surely die. God doesn't have that authority. He doesn't have that power over you. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know good from evil. And it worked. Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit and they ate. They did the one thing that God forbade them from doing. And they sinned against God. And so now sin has entered the world. And what happened next? Their eyes were opened and they recognized their sinfulness. And so they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then they heard God walking in the garden and they went and they hid themselves. And God comes looking for them. And when he comes looking for them, he asks these four rhetorical questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? What is this that you have done? Adam and Eve's response to God is that they blame others. Adam says, it's not my fault, it's Eve, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. Eve points to the snake and says, it is his fault, it is not my fault. So we see here in these opening verses of chapter 3, we see the two most common ways that we respond to sin. And that is with shame and blame. When we sin, we are filled with shame and we blame others or we blame our circumstances for that sin. And you don't really have to look very hard in your own life to see this, do you? How do you deal with your sin? First, we're ashamed. And so what do we do with that shame? We try to hide. We try to hide from our shame. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do. Now, we might hide not necessarily in a garden. We may hide through addictions. We may try to hide our shame through relationships, through entertainment, through work, even doing good work. There are all sorts of things that we do in order to attempt to suppress and cover up the shame that we feel because of our sin. But we also blame. Yes, I sinned, but it wasn't my fault. It was my wife or my husband's fault. It was my kid's fault. It was my parents' fault. We might blame an unreasonable boss. I am just under so much stress. Life is just so hard. It is not my fault. When is the last time that you took full responsibility for your sin without excuse and without explanation? When sin entered the world, Adam we respond to sin with shame and blame. And that is what happened when sin entered the world. Adam and Eve were ashamed and they hid from God. And when confronted, they blamed others for their sin. So how did that work out for them? Well, their eyes were open. They did know good and evil, but here's the, the catch. is They also experienced evil. They experienced evil in their own heart. They are now fallen, sinful human beings. And there will be great consequence due to their sin. Because all of creation now comes under a curse. It has fallen. But there's also something we need to see here. When God comes into the garden looking for them, yes, he's coming in part to judge, but he's also coming with grace. What does he ask, or why does he ask the question that he asks? Why does God ask those series of questions? It's not because he's ignorant. He knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. 
He knows exactly what they have done. There is nothing that is hidden from him. So God is not seeking information. He's not trying to figure out what happened. He's coming with an invitation. It's an invitation for Adam and Eve to, to confess their sin, to repent, to seek God's mercy and to turn once again to him. And this is so important for us to see because sin is offensive to God and sin must be punished. And there's always consequence to sin. However, sin does not have to lead us to hopelessness. You see, sin presents an opportunity for us to repent and to turn back to God who is merciful and gracious. So Genesis 3 presents a very dark day for the human race. But even in the darkness, there is light. But I want to start by looking at the consequences first. And follow the order of transgression. First to the serpent, then to the woman, and finally to Adam. So how does God curse the serpent? Well, we see this in verses 14 and 15. He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, the first thing that I want to notice in this interaction with, with the serpent is that it's different than how he interacts with Adam and Eve. He never asks the serpent any questions. He doesn't come to interrogate him. He just declares a sentence upon him. And not only that, but he curses the serpent directly. He says, cursed are you. He doesn't do that with Adam and Eve. Why is that? What is the reason for that? It's because Satan has already been condemned. He has no hope for pardon. He will not be shown mercy or grace because he is cursed. And his curse can be described in three ways. Humiliation, hostility, and hopelessness. First, humiliation. The serpent is cursed above all creatures. He's destined to spend his life on his belly, eating the dust of the ground. And this is a picture of humiliation, that he will spend his entire life in this position of weakness always in danger of being trampled upon. Secondly, hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. Humans, you know, we've been given authority and dominion over all creation. We, in a sense, are, are the caretakers of God's creation. And therefore, all animals, to some extent, are reliant upon us. They're dependent upon us as their caretakers. And serpents are always going to have an uneasy relationship with the ones that are ordained to care for them. There's always going to be some level of hostility and uneasiness between the two. And we know that this is true. Every one of us is born, at least to some extent, with an innate fear of snakes. Now, yes, there are some people that overcome those fears. There are some people that love snakes, some people that have them as you know, pets, but they're, they're, they're anti-biblical. <laughs> no, it's serpents strike fear. Living in a fallen world means that there will always be some level of hostility between humans and snakes. It's really interesting if you look through history. There are many examples in history. There are many examples in legend where you know, a pit of snakes is used as a torture device or as a means of killing enemies or as at least threatening them to get them to talk, you know, threaten to throw somebody in a pit of snakes or a pit of vipers. But you know what you never see? You never see somebody being threatened with a pit of kittens. <laughs> Why is that? Well, despite Essen's best efforts, there is not enmity between cats and humans. Cats are cuddly and precious. Snakes, though, there's enmity. Snakes strike 
fear. So Indiana Jones, he speaks biblical truth when he says, I hate snakes. It's because of the curse. Serpents are cursed with humility or humiliation and hostility. But they're also cursed with hopelessness. You see, they are destined to eat dust. Now, this is not saying literally that snakes are going to eat dust. It's really a picture of their vile nature. And more significantly, it points us once again to, to who's behind the snake. It points to Satan. Look again at, verse, at the end of verse 19. He said, when we are told, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, death has entered the world, and that is represented by dust. Humans, we came their lifetime turned to dust. And serpents are cursed to spend their lifetime eating dust. In other words, they are always near death. Satan will lead many to death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. And all who follow him are destined for destruction. And Satan himself is destined for destruction. We see this in verse 15 when we read, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan's days are numbered. There is going to come one from the seed of the woman that will crush his head. And that brings, it says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall Now, if you look back at Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see that the the primary responsibility, the primary calling calling given to Eve is to be a helper and to have children. And so the curse affects those two primary spheres of responsibility that have been given to her. First is childbearing. Women will experience pain when they bring forth children. And this is not just talking about labor. Labor is now painful, and as a man, I'm not going to even imagine how painful that is, but it's painful. But there will also be pain and challenges and difficulties throughout the entire process of raising children. And we all know this is true. If you're a parent here, you know this is true. Yes, children are a gift. They can bring much joy and happiness. But raising children is also accompanied with many tears, with periods of great exhaustion and anxiety. Because you worry about their health. You worry about their safety. You're concerned about the decisions they make. You're concerned about the friends that they make. There are all sorts of things about raising children that are hard. And that is because of the curse. Now, most women are called to raise children. That is your God-ordained, one of your God-ordained purposes. But that doesn't mean it's going to come easy. Because we now live in a fallen world. And the consequences of sin will hit very close to home. And that brings us to the second part of this curse, which is a woman's desire shall be contrary to her husband, but he shall rule over her. Now, now there are many translations, or most translations leave out that word contrary. Matter of fact, the version of the ESV I have doesn't actually have that in there. It just simply says, your desire will be for your husband. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it, right? What, what husband doesn't want their wife to desire them? But that is not what is meant here. And that is why the newer version of the ESV adds the word contrary. And we get a clue to the meaning of this if you look in the next chapter in Genesis 4, verse 7, which says this. God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for This is not a positive use of the word desire. Sin is not seeking to, to love and support and encourage Cain. No, sin is seeking to rule over Cain. And that is what we see here in Genesis 3. The curse affects women in such a way that they will have an innate desire to rule over their husbands. They will want mastery over their husbands and mastery over the home. 
But God has commanded, he has ordained husbands to be the, home of the, the head of the home. Husbands have been given, been given authority over their wives, and that's why the curse ends with this idea, he shall rule over you. Now, that's not just a statement of fact. There's also a curse associated with that, because that role, that relationship is now also marred and tainted by sin. Therefore, husbands will have a tendency to either be passive or overly aggressive and domineering. Husbands will be tempted either to release their God-given responsibility to their wives or they will lead their wives harshly and sometimes even abusively. So we see here in Genesis 3.16, this is the source of all marital conflict. The most important human relationship is now marred by sin. If you are struggling with your marriage today, it all leads back to this. The consequence of sin is that husbands will be tempted to do the exact opposite of what they are called to do when leading and loving their wives, and that wives will be tempted to do the exact opposite of what they are called to do when loving and supporting their husbands. Paul summarizes the roles of another. This is why it's very well in Ephesians 5, really with two words, and that is love and respect. That's how we are to really relate with one another. Husbands are called to love their wives. Wives are called to respect their husbands. Husbands are called to love their wives the same way Christ loves his church, which is with an unconditional and sacrificial love. We are called to love them in a way that encourages them and equips them to flourish. So husbands, how are you doing? Husband, if you are here this morning and you yell at your wife, if you belittle your wife, If you put her down, if you speak harshly with her or about her, that needs to stop. It needs to stop now because you are perpetuating a curse. That is not what you're called to do. And wives, you're called to respect your husbands. That means that you will be submissive and supportive. You're called to respect your husbands in a way that encourages him and equips him to flourish. So how are you doing at that? If you are disrespectful towards him, if you talk disrespectfully about him to others, that also needs to stop because you too are perpetuating the curse. Why is this so important? Why is it so important for us to understand how sin affects marriages? Well, listen to these words from Ligon Duncan. He says, Satan continues to use marital relations as one of his most fruitful grounds of attack against the people of God and against the cause of God and the building up of the kingdom. And our commitment to marriage requires us to be aware of that dynamic and to do everything we can to combat it in supporting one another and reminding one another that it is not surprising that we should be suffering. Marriage is important and we need to be doing everything we can to protect it. And the curse hits us directly. So we see here in Genesis 3 that the serpent is cursed, the woman is cursed, and now God turns his attention to Adam. And we see this in verses 17 through 19. And he says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you have ability given to, to Adam, to man. We are called to have dominion over creation. We are called to work the land. And now that's going to be difficult and painful because of sin. And it's important to see that that's like the very source of their food. That is the very source of their life. And that they're going to have to fight against that all the days of their life in order to sustain life. Man is called to work, but because of sin, work is now going to be full of challenges, frustrations, and failure. 
And this is not just true of gardening. It's true of all work. Because we are all created to work. Work came in Genesis 1 and 2. It didn't show up in Genesis 3. Work is good. Work is designed to bring us joy and purpose. But now because of sin, it also brings us pain and sweat. Now your work, whatever you do, it may be a burden to you because of a difficult boss. It may be because of lazy employees. It may be because of faulty equipment. It may be because of unreasonable expectations that are placed upon you. But whatever it is, whatever makes your work a burden rather than a blessing, it's ultimately due to sin. The serpent is cursed, the woman is cursed, the man is cursed. We are cursed right where we are at the things that we are primarily called to do. Our primary sphere of responsibility is now polluted by sin, and our most important human relationship is also tainted by sin. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. We see this down in verse 24. It says, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away, turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So Adam and Eve and all their future children, they are expelled from the Garden of Eden with no hope of ever returning. Why does that matter? The garden represents the presence of God. Adam and Eve, they had intimate fellowship with God before Genesis 3, before the fall, but that is now gone. And this is the, most, this is the hardest consequence of sin, is that our relationship with God is now broken. That we're no longer able to come into His presence And if that is all there was in this passage, there would be no hope. It would be hopeless. We'd be living in a hopeless world because there would only be darkness. But however, in the midst of these curses, there is. How did God respond to sin? How does He respond to Adam and Eve? How does He respond to you? He responds with grace. The first thread of grace we find in this passage is in verse 15. That he put enmity between the serpent and Eve, between her offspring and hers. Now that seems strange at first. Well, how is enmity a grace? Well, in order for us to understand this, we need to understand who these offsprings are. Who, who the offspring of the serpent is, who the offspring of the woman is. The offspring of the serpent, yeah, in some ways it does refer to the creatures, you know, the snakes. But it's got a deeper meaning. Ultimately it points to Satan. And, and, you know, we find this true in other places of Scripture, like Revelation 12, 9, reminds us that Satan is the one that was called the ancient serpent. So the offspring of the serpent is referring to everyone that belongs to Satan. And the offspring of the woman, it's not referring to all humanity, it is referring to her future covenant children. And, and the Bible makes this clear, starting in Genesis 4 on, that there are two lines. There are the lines of Cain and the line of Seth. There are those who are faithful to God and those who are not And the Bible does this in many ways. The Bible talks about there are really just two categories of humans, and only two. There are the faithful and the unfaithful. There are believers and unbelievers. There are the repentant and unrepentant. There are the elect and the reprobate. There are followers of Christ and followers of Satan. Those are the only two categories. There are no third categories. You belong to one of those camps. You are either the offspring of Eve or the offspring of the serpent. And God has placed intimacy between these two groups. And that is gracious because it's meant to protect his covenant people, to drive a wedge between our sin. 
It is the grace of God's protection. The next thread that we see of God's grace, we see in verse 16. Yes, it will be painful for women to have and to raise children, but you will still be able to have and raise children. God could have ended everything with Eve. He could have made her barren, and the whole human race would have died out with her and Adam. But he didn't do that. God still wanted her to be fruitful and to multiply. And we get a glimpse of this in verse 20 when Adam names his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all living. She will be allowed to fulfill her purpose. And this is true of Adam as well. God is gracious to him. Though his work will be frustrating and hard, he will still be able to work. And we see this down in verse 23 that when they are expelled from the garden, God still says he sends them out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. So Adam will still also be able to fulfill his ultimate purpose. He'll be able to produce food and survive. And this is true for all of us. God has given us a purpose. And although we live in a fallen world, though our efforts to fulfill our purpose will be tainted and frustrated by sin, by God's grace, we will still be able to accomplish them. We will still be able to fulfill them. Now, we cannot do that in our own strength. We will not be able to do that with our own wisdom. That's really how we got in trouble in the first place. We need God to intervene. We need God to overcome the curse on our behalf. And God is gracious. We see this immediately after God lays out the consequences of sin. What is the first thing that God does after speaking these curses to Adam and Eve? What's the first thing he does? Well, look at verse 21. He says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God covered them. But why was that necessary? They were already covered, weren't they? They already made fig leaves and they covered themselves. So why did God cover them again? This is really is, is a picture of the gospel in a nutshell. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They became conscious of their sin. They were filled with shame, and so they grasped at the first thing they could to try to cover their sin. They grasped at fig leaves and made coverings out of fig leaves to try to cover their, themselves from uh, their shame. But it wasn't sufficient. No matter how hard they tried, no matter what they did, they would You cannot hide from your sin. And there's no God that will do what we cannot do. And so in a profound act of grace, God covered Adam and Eve not with fig leaves, but with animal skins. This required death. It required blood to be spilled in order to cover his children. And this is a foreshadowing of all the substitutionary sacrifices that you will see throughout the Old Testament. Ultimately, it is a picture of what Jesus does on the cross. It is a picture of the only atoning sacrifice that we need. Because it is his blood, it is his sacrifice, is the only thing that can cover us. Is the only thing that can cover our sin. And that leads to the greatest picture of grace in this passage, and that's that God makes a promise. We see this once again in verse 15, that he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises to send someone one day to defeat Satan, to defeat sin and Satan. That person will be harmed, but he will not be defeated. And that promise has been fulfilled already in Jesus he was sent into this world to bruise Satan's head. He was sent in this world to crush Satan, to defeat him. We are reminded of this in, in the, one of the quotes in your bulletin, which says, Satan's condition is terminal, and there is no chance that he will see victory. Jesus, he is the light in the darkness. 
He is our only hope. In the beginning of the sermon, I talked about how the two responses to sin, which are shame and blame. Well, Jesus takes your shame and he takes your blame upon himself. And I want us to consider for just a moment the implications of this. Maybe you're here this morning and you are just carrying the weight and shame of, of an abortion. Here this morning and you are just carrying the weight of an addiction. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's some horrible things that you said to your mom or your dad that has broken that relationship. We all have shame. But Jesus takes that shame away. He removes it. He takes it upon himself. Why do you think there's so much detail in the Gospels of, of Jesus being shamed, of Jesus being spat upon, being hit, being mocked, being abandoned, being abused, being beaten, being flogged, and eventually being killed on the cross naked? It's all about shame and guilt. Jesus received what we deserved. He has taken on himself your shame. And so there's no reason to hide from him. He is gentle and lowly. He is full of compassion. And he loves you. So go to him. And not only does sin lead to shame, but it also causes us to blame others for it. And it's really interesting because Jesus who is without sin, Jesus who is utterly blameless, he takes our sin upon himself and in essence he says, blame me. Blame me for your sin. And then he pays the penalty for that sin. So we are now free. Through Jesus we have been redeemed. We've been clothed in his righteousness. And we have been set free. Yes, we live in a fallen world. We see the effects of sin all around us. We see the effects of sin in our own hearts. But Jesus has won. He is one, and he is making all things new. And he promises one day to return, and when he returns, the curse will be no more, because sin will be no more. What a day that will be. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you this morning rejoicing in our Savior, Jesus, who redeemed us burdened and weighted down by shame that they are carrying. I pray that you would release them today, that they would cast that upon Jesus, and that they would know that they are forgiven, that they are loved. Lord, if there are others here that don't, even, that don't know Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they call upon him in faith. They come to know that he is a compassionate Savior. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would recognize that, yes, we live in a fallen world, a world that is full of darkness, that we still wrestle with sinful flesh, that we still do the very things that we don't want to do and don't do the things that we do want to do, but that we are also no longer condemned in Christ Jesus, and that we have the hope and the promise that Jesus will return, and when he returns, his Victory will, will be complete, and the defeat of Satan and sin will be complete. And we have the promise that we will spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth, where there are no more shame, no more guilt, no more tears, because there will be no more sin. 
Help us long for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name.